I want to hit a couple of things here before we jump into our sermon. If you do have a Bible, though, I would invite you, as I'm talking here, to flip over to Matthew 18. Uh, we're going to walk through the entire chapter again. And so if you've got a Bible or you've got your Bible app, open that up, and uh, we'll be walking through that in a second. A couple of things, though, here I want to highlight for you. First of all, this Wednesday night will begin our peak of the week. Uh, the ladies' class will begin on September 4th, but everybody else will begin this week. And so we invite you, I think that schedule is in your bulletin, and uh, to be a part of that. Again, don't forget that grief share, divorce care, some of those classes are starting as well as just a regular adult class that uh, will meet uh, this Wednesday night and everyone going forward. And the ladies will begin on September 4th as well. Um, also, the next thing is uh, uh, kind of a new thing for you. Um, you notice know, since the tornado, there's been a duplex across the street that's been sitting uh, empty and not been touched. And uh, we were presented a couple weeks ago with an opportunity uh, to buy that at a very low price. And, and uh, so we did it, not knowing for sure what we're going to do with it, but uh, it was a good price and it needs to be fixed because it just looks terrible. And so uh, uh, we have a demo day next Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Uh, the first thing we have to do is get it cleaned out because it's moldy and nasty and get a roof on it so it's dry. And then we can make decisions, whatever that looks like going forward. And so That'll make that little corner of the neighborhood look a lot better as well. So if you are into demo, we've got a day for you. 8 o'clock next Saturday morning, we're going to gut the whole thing, uh, get rid of everything that's dry, that's wet and moldy and nasty, uh, leave the outside frame, and then we'll get a roof on it, and then uh, we'll, f we'll, let's, we'll talk more about that as the weeks go as we think about that process. But uh, anyway, so next Saturday morning, if you are free, we would love to have your help. Uh, maybe bring some gloves, bring a mask, because it's kind of nasty and moldy in there, and so uh, we'll have some available too for you. But uh, that will be next Saturday morning uh, at the duplex across the street from the church, okay? Um, all right, so a couple things here. Um, Matthew 18, I invite you to turn there. Uh, we're going to jump in that. And uh, last week we read an entire chapter. I told you if you're one of those, read a, read a chapter a day. I was going to take care of you last week. I did it. I'm going to do it again today. I didn't mean to, but I think what, as I listened to a couple things, read a couple things in this chapter, I think uh, there's value in reading this entire chapter here today. But I, I want to start with this, that um, my favorite article that I read this week, um, and I don't mean to be disparaging or off-color by what I'm going to read the title of this article, but I, I love the article because it deals with our theme that we're going to talk about today of, of being a, a forgiving person, being a grace-filled person. And this is an article that was written by uh, the New Jersey something in some newspaper online by Steve Pilati, uh, Pil no, Pilates or exercise, Politi, P-O-L-I-T-I, okay? Uh, but here's the title of his article. I was a bird-flipping little League menace, it's time to come clean. And uh, again, I was a bird flipping little league menace, and it's time to come clean. And the whole article talks about a time when he was a little kid, he's playing little league baseball, and he was, it was one of those competitive games, championship game kind of thing, and, and his team was trying to beat the team that like had all the sponsors, and had all the cool stuff, and they're trying to beat them, and, and it was the last of bad, and, and he hit a, a, a ball way out in the outfield, and, and they were down by two, I think, and so the one run scored, another run scored, and, and he was coming around third, and he had all these visions of all the, the, the hero he was going to be by hitting a game-winning home run, and he slid into home plate, and instead of all the adulation and praise, he heard the umpire say, you're out. Well, he was, all of a sudden, quickly, all that stuff faded away, and, and he realized he wasn't going to get to enjoy all of those things, and, and for whatever reason, he turned, and, and he made a very inappropriate gesture to the umpire, and not just once, but with both hands, and so I won't go into what that is, but I think you can use your imagination to figure it out. He's a little kid, and crowd he got in trouble for it. It wasn't a good thing, um, but for 30-some-odd years, he's lived with that. And this article details how he went about trying to find the umpire and to make it 
right to say I'm sorry because now I'm a dad and I watch all this and I see all my kids and I watch other people and I have higher standards as I did when I was a kid. But it was just an interesting, good read of a man who realized, boy, what a stupid thing that was for me to do way back when. And I need to make that right. So it goes through all the details of how we tried to finally track down the umpire and was able to make that phone call. And, and uh, it's just an interesting read. But it introduces the theme today that I think is relevant for all of us. We all probably have moments of life where we both need to show some grace and some humility and some forgiveness. But we also need to be uh, humble enough to ask for it sometimes when, when we have been the offender. And so we are going to read through Matthew chapter 18 uh, from 1 to the end. And, and normally the, the passage that we think about with forgiveness is really the last half of this chapter. It's, it's a section in which it's the story of, of the king uh, and, and his servant, and his servant owes a great big debt to the king, and he begs for mercy, the king wipes it away, and finally the, the servant who is forgiven goes out and finds uh, one of his co-workers who owes him just a small amount, and he refuses to forgive him, throws him in jail, has all terrible things happen to him, and, and just that story of forgiveness. But as we read through this chapter, I've highlighted a phrase or two, because there is a connection that runs all the way through this chapter. It's the little phrases of brothers and sisters and little ones. And we think, well, it's little kids, and, and that may apply. There's certainly an application for that, but that's really not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking, he defines that term for us, and so as we read this whole family connection, uh, the, the heart of what he's trying to get us to be and to think about and to, to look at life through these lenses and live from this place, I want you to, to see this as we read through it. So Matthew 18, beginning in verse 1, says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Unless you change and become like little children, there's the first little reference, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So again, note the attitude that he's trying to cultivate in his disciples. And whoever loves in my name welcomes me. So again, define that, right? Define that biblically, what Jesus is talking about. Anyone who humbles himself before Jesus to follow. So this is a brother-sister, this is a church relationship conversation. Uh, not as much old people, young people, okay? Get that, that picture in your mind. Although it certainly applies that way if you want to look at it. If anyone causes one of these little ones, defining it back before, right? Your brothers and sisters. You cause a brother or sister to stumble. Those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And I meant to go grab a picture of a millstone in ancient times. And it's a very unpleasant picture, right? It's a great big stone. They'd roll it around. A donkey would pull it around. it crushed grain, right? Huge old stone. It's a very, very graphic, painful picture. Jesus says, it's better to be drowned in the sea with a, nail, uh, a millstone hung on your neck than to do this. Verse 7 says, woe to the world because of such things that cause people to stumble. So, woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Um, so we're feeling pretty good, right? Jesus is making us real feel comfortable and warm and fuzzy about ourselves. Not so much, right? He's really challenging us. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, brother-sister language. For I tell you that the angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. In other words, they matter deeply to him. 
So what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, he will not will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones, same language again, should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their faults, just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they, listen, if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if, if two of you on earth agree about anything, they ask for it, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked. He understands the implications of all this, right? And you're talking about this forgiveness thing and this kindness and this humbleness thing uh, and repentance thing. It says, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, well, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up, up to seven times? That seems legit, right? If I forgive you seven times for doing something against me, at some point I need to cut you off and say enough is enough. But Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77. Or you might say 70 times seven, right? A lot, right? It's hyperbole. It's exaggeration for effect. Therefore, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was unable to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt, which is a very justifiable thing, right? If, if you can't pay a debt, they auction off your stuff to pay debts, all those kind of things. We don't sell your family anymore, but that used to be a thing. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debts and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and he begged him, uh, please be patient with me. Same words as he said before, and I will pay it back. But he refused. And until he could pay the debt. And when the servant saw what had happened, they were outraged and they went and told their master everything that it happened. And then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't I have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how your heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister. There's that language again. It goes back to the beginning of this chapter, right? That brother or sister from your heart. So this is a long passage to process. It's a hard passage, a little bit gory in places. Uh, so let's wrestle with this and think about this today. It's been a summer, right? A lot of There's been floods and heat, political drama at every turn, all over the place. And the most important news of the summer. I want to show you a picture and see if someone can tell me what this is. Put that picture of the cookies up there. Who can tell me what this is from? Anybody know this story? Where these cookies came from? These are special cookies, right? Anybody know? Anybody? Okay. All right. I'm impressed that you don't know, actually. These special cookies. Put the next picture up, if you would. These are cookies because Taylor Swift and Katy Perry had been feuding, and the feud is now over, and they got 
And there's peace at last. And so all that and staying up at night because Katy Perry and uh, whatever, the Titan together they've been bitter and, and they're trying to steal people's play things and undermine their concerts and singing bad blood songs about each other and, and all those things that have been going on in the last four or five years. There is peace at last, right? I slept but I thought that's really cool and, and all can be well in the world because Katy Perry and Taylor Swift are one again. Woohoo! Right? And so we could just pray and give thanks and leave right now and leave, right? We're not going to do that. But I, I share that but I think it illustrates the idea that, that we're drawn to a story that, uh, of, of bearing the hatchet, right? We, we like those kind of things. We're, we're drawn to that. We appreciate those kinds of things. And, and uh, you can take their pictures off the screen now. That's okay. That, that we've talked about them enough. Um, but that leads us to this whole idea. If you were to go back and look and, and think, what was it that led these two humble servants of humanity to be angry and hate each other? It's a long list of things. And it seems they really didn't like each other. They listened to their songs and all that stuff. And I'm sure they've sold lots of records and got their faces out there because they reconciled and all those kind of things. But we can relate to some of that, right? I don't relate or singing songs about me. I don't relate to that. But we can relate to the, the angst of having people that have offended us or, or we offend them and, and we do things against each other and, and there's just this lack of harmony. There's not a, a reconciled relationship that exists. And we hear people, we say things like this to each other sometimes. She's dead to me. I, I never want to see him again. You deserve to rot in hell. You stabbed me in the back. They should lock you up and throw away the key. I, I hate you. I wish you were dead. I will never, ever forgive you. And all along the things, the songs, and the phrases could go. And we felt that, right? We've wrestled with those thinking things because people, and, and maybe we're the offender, maybe they're the offender, maybe we're both the offender. Those sound familiar, and we understand that. But we read a chapter like this, and Jesus is inviting us to grow in grace and forgiveness, right? You read this chapter, and Jesus implies that, that there are to, to reconcile a desire to forgive, the desire to move forward. Again, it's not easy. This chapter is not a chapter where Jesus says, oh, just let it go, it's fine. Jesus understands the process and the pain and, and the hurt of it. And, and again, you're going to hear this, and we may look at things in our life. There, there's no easy fixes. I get that, and that's not, that's not what I'm saying. Um, but I think there's a process here that Jesus describes that, that simply answers two very simple questions for us that I think this text makes us think about, uh, and I want to think about with you here real quickly, um, and, um, and they're simply these. Number one, the first question is, why is it so hard to forgive? Why is it so hard for us to forgive? I think this passage speaks to that in a couple of ways. And the second question we're going to answer or look at is, is how are we called to forgive one another? And so in a quick way, let's kind of kind of walk through this chapter again and allow it to speak to us and, and encourage us. Question number one, why is it so hard to forgive? And the first question, the first answer is, is really one that I don't like very well, but I think it's true. And it's the first half of this chapter. I think it's hard for us to get, forgive because we sometimes have too high a view of ourselves. Sometimes the view of ourselves, and that's what Jesus begins this chapter with. By the time he gets to the end, he's talking about forgiveness. But at the beginning of this chapter, it begins with a question that the disciples asked him, who's the greatest? 
Now, again, that question, if, if I come to you and I say, hey, who's your favorite preacher? Who's your, who, who's your favorite preacher? What am I doing? I'm looking to prop myself up compared to others, right? I'm looking to elevate myself and, and decrease others' standing in my mind, in someone else's mind. Um, so sometimes um, you read this, and as you read to these chapters, these paragraphs in Matthew 18, I, I've probably preached sermons on most of them at different times throughout my life, and I've separated and that's fine. There's, there's good things to be learned by separating them. But I, I, as I was reading and, and listening to things this week, it just the, the link that, I, that was struck in several people, that, that just they, there's a thread that runs through here. And part of it begins with, sometimes it's hard to forgive because I think too much of myself. And I'm worried too much about my high view of myself. And so when the text begins in Matthew 18.1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus moves very quickly to say, hey, let me illustrate what greatness in my kingdom looks like. And he called some kids over. And he said, hey, you see this little kid? Unless you become like one of these little kids, if you become humble, unless you become dependent, what are kids in this context? And, and Jesus said, especially, kids were oftentimes, they had no power. They had no, they were just obeyed. They, they were just kind of expected to do what was told to them. They didn't fend for themselves. They were provided for. Um, they were very dependent. They're very humble in a lot of ways, needy in a lot of ways. And Jesus says, unless you become, take this lowly position in my kingdom, then you have no chance of entering my kingdom. And so Jesus redefines greatness, right? We think greatness is how many people am I ruling, leading, who, how many people answer when I say go. Um, but Jesus says, no, it's not like that. You see, in my kingdom, greatness is about being like this little child who is humble and who is in need of, of parental guidance, of leadership, of love, of all the things that a father or a mother can give them. And so Jesus takes, says that lowly position and can you already see that when I come to the issue of grace and forgiveness towards other people, if I come from a position of, of a lowly position, do you already see how easy, how much easier it is for me to learn to forgive, to ask forgiveness, to own my sin when I come this way? And so maybe that's part of the case. They um, see Jesus used children to illustrate this because they were not in a position of authority. They are expected to do what they're told. The child holds no real power in the world, especially in his day. They hold more now, but they held little in Jesus' day. And so he underscores that by saying, hey, boy, part of this whole thing, by the time you get to the chapter, it talks about forgiveness. Boy, it starts with this lowly position. And then that leads to the second thing that is the more obvious one. Sometimes it's hard to forgive, if you go to that next one, if you would. It's hard to forgive because being wronged hurts, right? That's really the heart of it. And that's probably what we all say. That's the number one reason. It's hard for me to forgive because, boy, it hurts. It hurts when I'm wronged. It hurts when someone says something, does something, doesn't do something, doesn't say something. I hope they would. Why is it so hard to forgive? It's hard to forgive because being wronged hurts. And that's where Jesus goes next. First he says, hey, you need this humble, lowly position. But then he goes into that kind of glory uh, graphic part of the chapter where he talks about uh, drowning by having stones thrown around your necks and chopping body parts off. And you think, what in the world is Jesus doing with all that? And what he's trying to do is he's trying to get us to see that sin always hurts. Sin always brings pain into our relational lives, no matter what relationship it is. Whether it's society, whether it's marriage, whether it's family, whatever it is. Whenever I live in a sinful, prideful, whatever 
old attitude or life that always brings pain into the context of my relationships. And so, six, if anyone causes one of these little ones, these humble ones, these ones that are trusting in me to stumble, it's better for them to have a millstone around their neck and drown. Uh, verse seven, woe to the world because of such things, they're going to stumble, but, but boy, woe to you. And what's he trying to do? He's trying to get us, I think, to stop and realize, boy, my actions, especially my sinful actions, have very serious consequences. And so under the context of sin hurting, Jesus is trying to illustrate to us, we, you know, we agree with him. Now, we know that when people sin towards us, it hurts, but he's trying to get us to own the fact, you know what, just in the same way, my sins towards other people, they hurt. And so I should guard my actions, right? I don't want to cause someone to stumble because I come at them with a prideful attitude or, or a hurtful attitude. I don't want to get rid of the sinful pain consequences. And then it gets to the gory part in verses 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot cause you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than have two hands and be thrown into fire, eternal fire. It says if your eyes cause you to stumble, uh, again, verse 9, um, pluck it out. It's better to go through life with, with no eyes than go to heaven than have two eyes and go to hell. That's, that's, what's he talking about? Is he talking about self-harm? Uh, is that what, he's supposed, what we're supposed to do with that? And, and I, first of all, I would say Jesus is not into self-harm. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But again, this is hyperbole. He's trying to, to show you the weight of something. He's trying to say, you know what? Sin does such damage to our life. And let me visualize what sin does to your life. It's like, boy, if, if I was to say, boy, if I was to walk up here on stage and, and, I, and I had no eyes because, boy, oh Lord, I, I lingered over something I shouldn't have looked at it longer. And, and so I plucked my eyes out and, and that's fixed the problem. And so you would look at me and you think, well, you're crazy, right? That, why would you do that? And that's kind of the feeling Jesus is going for, but he's trying to get us to think in a different way about the sin and the things that we do and the ways we approach each other to realize, boy, if, if I don't want to cause somebody else to stumble, I certainly don't want to, I want to be careful. I want to work, be diligent to guard sin in my own life because of, of the weight of that, of the consequences of that. And so he's already not making us feel very good here, right? As you go through this chapter, what he's trying to get us to do is to own the idea of my sin matters, right? I need this humble place. It's not about me propping myself up and being prideful. I need this graceful, grace-filled attitude. And I need to guard my steps very closely. How I deal with people, how I relate to people. I don't want to cause someone else to stumble. I want to be careful about my own sin because sin always has this ripple effect of, of pain, of, of damage, of destruction in my life. And so he's trying to lead us to a place where we will own sin. Instead of denying it and living it, that I will confess it, I will own it, I will confess it to others, because my sin has consequences. And, and he wants us to understand the beauty of repentance and the desire to stop sinning and the drastic actions to make sure I do that. And so Jesus isn't calling us again to self-harm, but he is calling us to take sin seriously with this very um, graphic language he uses. And so... Um, you look at this chapters thus far, and we're going to have to land this plane quickly here, but um, you were not feeling very good about yourself, right? You're looking at this thinking, man, if this is the case, I, I know I've done some stupid things just this week, done some stupid things that I'm not proud of, and boy, I probably had things that harmed me, that harmed other people through my attitudes or actions, and, and I'm thinking, man, I'm not no longer asking, hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is like, Am I even worthy? 
to enter the kingdom, right? Am I even worthy? And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get us to see because the next thing he does then is he answers the question, well, how then are we called to forgive, right? Forgiving is hard because it hurts and we're prideful sometimes, but how are we called to forgive? Well, we're called to forgive in the rest of this chapter just like God forgave us. And what Jesus begins to do is he begins to outline paragraph by paragraph all these things that God does. He says in verse 12, what do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, right? In the context of, boy, we're sinful people. We keep wandering away from what's true and what's right. What is God's response to that? When, when, we, when we hurt him, when we sin against him, what's, the, what's he do? He's like a shepherd who has lost his sheep and he goes in pursuit of us. He goes in pursuit of reconciliation, of bringing us home, of making it right, of making us right with him. And so he finds it in verse 13, 14. He finds it, I tell you, he's happy about that. He's joyful about reconciling with us. And so there's this beauty about this. And so in verses 15 and 16, he says, hey, just like your father pursues you when you wander away, the next thing he says is, well, if your brother or sister sins against you, go to them. And he outlines a process that, uh, go to them one-on-one. Hey, have those conversations. Uh, try to work it out. Try to make things right. And involve other people if you need to for perspective and humility and accountability and, and, and bring those things to fruition. This passage by itself is a good guideline, but it's with context, it's right after Jesus is talking about if the Father runs to you, and so why don't you have a heart then when you, when you know things aren't right between you and your brother or your sister, you should have that same heart of God that says, hey, I want to make that right, and, and I will go after the one who, who I'm separated from. And again, if Matthew, as he writes things and teaches things in his gospel, he tends to build on themes. Back in Matthew 7, he says, hey, before you go and point out the sin of somebody else's life, you better make sure you look in the mirror, get some specks and some logs out of your own eye before you go and, and do this. So again, he's building on that theme but he says, hey, there's this pursuit. Go looking for them. Go, go try to reconcile. Have that heart that longs to reconcile just like the father, just like the shepherd wants to find that lost sheep. And then finally he comes to the story of, of the king. Of the story of the king who, who, as you read it, and I'm going to finish by just reading this once again and just make a couple comments and then we will finish, okay? In verse, verse 23, the story about a king but the king is really God, and what it costs God to forgive us and make us right with him, okay? Verse 23 says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Okay, so you get this picture in context of everything we said about humility, uh, about being careful with uh, just watching, but then realizing we're probably going to fall on that, but a father who goes seeking after us, and this whole reconciliation theme. There's a kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, and so he began... As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. That's a lot, right? I don't know how many bags of gold you brought with you today, but 10,000 bags is a lot of gold, right? He, he owes a debt he cannot repay. I don't know what he did to borrow that much money, but apparently had a good time doing it, all right? And so, but it wasn't worth it. He had to pay the piper eventually. And so, since he wasn't able to pay, verse 25, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had, be sold to repay the debt. You know, you're going to have to work for me the rest of your life then. That's just the way it worked in their culture. At this, the servant fell on his knees. He realized, I can't pay this debt. I need mercy. And he says, be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything. And, um, and the servant's master took pity on him. And he canceled the debt and let him go. You see, the king canceled this huge debt. It doesn't downplay the debt, right? The debt is real. It is a legitimate debt that was owed that was 
he does confront him with it. He's just in this, but the king is also a shepherd, and he pursues reconciliation. He's merciful, he's gracious, he's compassionate, and he writes off the debt, and it's not held against the servant anymore. And just like in our walk with God, God forgives sins, and he no longer holds against us the sin that he forgives. And so imagine if I came up to you after church and said, hey, I got a little personal question here. I, I, I just want you to tell me your mortgage, and I want to go pay it off. I just, I'll take that burden on you, right? You can walk out of here today. I'm going to pay. I'll, I'll take the burden on me, right? And you can walk out of here free and forgiven and not have to worry about your mortgage payment anymore, right? Some of you are smiling and thinking, oh, where do I sign? I'll take that up. I'll take the up on that picture. Um, it wouldn't go very well, I'm just telling you. But uh, we could try it for a day. Uh, but again, you'd be free. But is that debt gone? No, that debt has been transferred to someone else. Because the debt doesn't go away. The king takes the, the pain. He takes the consequences. He takes the, the hit in his own life, in his own bank account, in his own pocketbook. And so the king has to pay the debt himself. And he takes the cost on himself. And he takes on the consequences of his servant's debt. And that's true forgiveness. He isn't pretending that all is fine when it's not. He acknowledges the hurt and the debt. He understands the consequences of it. But he's willing to take it on himself. And so I hope that you make the connection there that that's exactly what Jesus did for us. That God forgives us through Jesus. God doesn't forgive us apart from Jesus. God forgives us through Jesus. And that everything that we owe to God didn't just go away. God just didn't draw a line through. It was transferred. And Jesus, when you look at the pain of the cross and everything he went through, it was transferred to someone else. And the king paid our debt. And so when we ask the question, how do I learn to forgive Boy, i got to look to God because God does that. And so we mentioned earlier that we aren't called to mutilate our bodies. Again, I want to reinforce that because I want to leave, you may leave here with thinking, well, Jesus is all about self-harm. Why don't we, we do that? Well, why don't we mutilate ourselves or hurt ourselves, chop things off because we sin? Well, first, because I can't mutilate myself enough. There's not enough of me to keep chopping off because I keep sinning. But secondly and more importantly, I don't need to break my body because Jesus' body was broken for me. His pain. His hurt is where my hurt and my pain and my sin is transferred. His body bears the scars. And so what did he say as they were giving him those scars on the cross? His father, forgive them. And so Jesus took our debt and he absorbed that with himself at great cost to himself. And he now calls us to forgive one another in a similar way. And so we absorb the cost sometimes to pursue reconciliation. We forgive just as we are forgiven. And that leads us to this last thing I want to read. Verse 28 says, But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Right? Ten thousand bags of gold, hundred silver coins. Right? Tremendously different debts. But he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. You see the contradiction in that? His fellow servant fell to his knees, just like he had done before, and begged for mercy. Be patient with me, and I'll pay you back. But he refused. and said he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants watched all this, they were outraged. And they went and told the master everything that had happened. And the master calls the man back to, the, back to his throne room. He says, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay, pay back all that he owed. And so the forgiven servant ended up with a deeper debt because he refused to forgive. And I struggle with this. We all struggle with this sometimes. It is hard to forgive because the things that cause forgiveness to be necessary, they hurt. 
and we wrestle with pride. I have to let go of it, and it's hard. I want vengeance. I don't want forgiveness. And yet, this chapter encourages us to be a people who are better, and are getting better, and learning the skill of grace and forgiveness. And this is the last verse. This is how God will treat you unless you forgive one another. He says, this is how my Father in heaven will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. We forgive because we know what it is to be forgiven. And at a personal cost that was great to God in Christ. And so we seek out good, we seek our good, we find our good at his expense. And God goes to great lengths to forgive us. And so what does he ask? I want you then to engage in this process. It isn't easy. I understand it hurts. I understand there's pride to be swallowed. I understand it is not an easy process. But just like I took the consequences and the pain on me, I would invite you to engage in that as the Lord has forgiven to you. There's a song that we sing every once in a while that simply finishes with these words. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that Jesus spilled. May we appreciate that at a very deep level in our hearts and our souls. And may we in turn find the grace, find the forgiveness, find the kindness then to be that way to other people. Would you pray with me please? Father, this is not an easy chapter to read, to preach, and most importantly, it is not an easy chapter to live out. <clears throat> Few things challenge us more than, than learning to forgive one another. Daily, we wrestle with these prideful thoughts and hurtful thoughts, and, and we struggle with, well, what do I do with this? And so, Father, I, I just pray that at a very deep level that you would help me to help each one of us who listens here today to realize, first of all, the beauty and the cost of what it took for you, Father, to forgive us, that we would never underestimate that there was a real debt that we owed to you, Father, a very real debt with real consequences and painful consequences, but that was forgiven. And so we can walk in that freedom. And out of that freedom, may we in turn look for opportunities to show grace where grace was shown to us. Again, not in shallow ways, not in ways that, that just disregard everything about the past. This chapter talks about how we talk to each other and we, we confront and, and we deal with things. But in a real way, would you help us to, to find the grace through what grace has been shown to us to be more and more of a grace-filled people, to be more and more of a forgiving people, with each other, with those that we deal with um, in our life. And so we ask your help, Father, because we can't do this ourselves. On our own, we're just people who are causing other people to stumble and we're prideful and, and we're sinful. And so we need you to do a work in us that we can't do ourselves. And so help us in this moment, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a verse that we did not go back and look at a second time that I think is relevant as we finish here today. It's that little phrase, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. And I think in the context of that chapter of all the grace and forgiveness and reconciliation he keeps talking about, I think that's true whether Christians get together, where two or three are gathered, he's there. But I think in the context of where two or three have been reconciled, he's even more present there. Because what a greater testimony to the world than reconciled lives, reconciled people who have buried some hatchets and who are working through grace and forgiveness. What better testimony is there than that? 
And that's where God shows up. And so as we sing this last song, I love this first line, I hear your strength is small, right? You, you've got little weakness. You've got lots of weakness, little strength. Boy, let's just call on him right now. Let's ask him, God, lead me, help me, uh, change me, humble me, whatever needs to be done. God, do this work in my heart. So let's stand together and let's worship him. If you need someone to pray with you, we would love to do that in this moment. Just ask God's favor together as we help each other to be more graceful and forgiving people. Yeah.